Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. For today's episode, I invited Shauna Robinson to join me for a conversation about using tax returns to find assets and understated income. Shauna is a CPA and a partner at Woodrum Tate & Associates here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She is an Oklahoma State University graduate with a degree in accounting and an MBA. She specializes in estates and trust, oil and gas, partnership taxation, and research. And on top of all of those credentials and experiences, she is truly a professional, an effective problem solver, and an overall great friend. And I think I should know, because we used to be office neighbors. Here's my interview with Shauna Robinson. So welcome back to this episode. Today I have with me Shauna Robinson. Shauna, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So today, hopefully our listeners will just like be real excited about this topic. I think it's exciting. <laughs> right. I hope you would. Um, we're going to talk about finding assets and hidden income in a tax return. So we've kind of talked um, touched on it in a previous episode, episode four, and Megan and I talked about just some different ways that people hide income in general and that tax returns are a good resource whenever you're trying to find out what's real or not real. So I wanted to, hopefully at the risk of like not boring listeners, I mean, I don't think we're boring, obviously, but I'd like to just talk about some of the specifics in tax returns so that if a listener wants to go look at their own returns and maybe just understand how it works a little better just for life in general, but also if they're going through divorce or a partnership dispute, just some things to kind of look for. So I've asked you, the expert, to explain these things to us so that we can know them better. So what if we just start with, I kind of thought we could just break this down to the different Mm -hmm. forms. And so probably people are most familiar with a 1040, their personal return. And so what are some of the places that you would start looking for an asset? What does somebody own? Well, so the form 1040 used to be two pages long. Mm-hmm. pre-2017, but then there was a big tax reform. So now the 1040 is actually one page with just additional schedules. So that first page of the 1040 basically just summarizes all the forms and schedules behind it. So Schedule A is probably the first place that you would want to look. On the Schedule A, it's your itemized deductions and real estate taxes are listed there and also mortgage interests. And while they're not itemized with addresses of properties, Mm -hmm. a quick search from the county assessor, you can see the property tax that someone would pay in that county and then kind of reconcile the two. And if there's a lot more real estate taxes on that line of Schedule A, then you know there's other properties somewhere. So that kind of points you in the right direction. Kind of same with mortgage interest. I have a question about the real estate taxes. Are we only supposed to deduct the home that we live in? The home that you live in and your second home or vacation home. You can have a second also. Home. Yes. And then sometimes there'll be some investment property, which sometimes we see that here as just some raw land that's owned. Um, and it's there's a separate line there that says investment property. Okay. So it would be a non-producing additional property. Okay. A non-income right. property. But if you're going to put a business or rental real estate tax on there. That's not the, that's not where you would look to find that. No, that actually would be on an additional schedule. Um, the schedule E. So the schedule E lists all of your rental properties and it generally would have the address. Sometimes it'll only have the 
town and sit a uh, city and state, but generally it would have the property so you can go find that. It would also have any oil and gas royalties okay. that someone owns are listed there. Those are valuable. Mm-hmm. Could yes, be. Yes. Could be. Schedule C is any entities that the person owns and they're the hundred percent owner. Someone that they don't they don't have any partners in that. It's not an S corp. That would be listed. If there's an EIN number, because it's owned by one person, sometimes those are identified by the IRS based on your social security number. But if there is an EIN number associated with it, it's also listed on the Schedule C, as well as the address of the principal headquarters of that company. Okay. Then going back to the Schedule E, there's actually two pages to it. The first one has your rentals and your oil and gas royalties on it. The second page would list any partnerships or S-corps that you have. It'll have the amount of income, and it also has the EIN number for those. You can then take that information and go to your Secretary of State website and find out who the registered agent for those companies are. Right. And then Schedule B lists any interest and dividend income that you have. So that'll Mm -hmm. point you in the direction of any brokerage accounts, any interest-bearing bank accounts, or if there's any interest coming from any partnerships or S-corps. Those will be listed there. Okay. And Schedule D and Form 4797, that points us at anything that's sold. Any stocks that are sold will be on Schedule D, capital assets, or then 4797, any properties that they have that they have sold. So if if you're in a divorce litigation, it might be important to know that they've sold some of those assets. Right. And especially when they sold them, especially yes. if the divorce has been going on for a long time. <laughs> yes. Did they know about it? That type of thing. And that makes sense. So from a 1040, just kind of on our side of the world and how we use it, is we take all of these schedules that you've talked about and all of the key items that you've talked about, and we just make a list. Mm -hmm. Just list them out. We don't necessarily have to know what they are or anything to begin with, but just create a list. So one question I do have because of the changes in the tax forms and the standard deduction went up. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's going to mean like fewer people are filing itemized deductions. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So one of our best resources is going to be a little more limited. Right. For certain income levels. Yes. For certain income levels, you won't have the real estate taxes and the mortgage interest for those principal residents. So that's Mm going to cause a little bit of an an issue for that. Yeah. Which I'm sure, you know, well, I know that there are other ways we can get that information, but it's just really nice to be able to make that list that I was talking about to be able to find those things. So, okay. So related to the 1040, what are some ways that people could reduce the income that shows up on this 1040? So one of the easiest ways is if you happen to have a Schedule C, it lists the income for that company and all the expenses. And one big thing is always depreciation. Tax depreciation allows you to accelerate the method. So if you bought a $100,000 piece of equipment, there are tax provisions in place so that you can take all the total cost of that asset in the year that you purchase it. So that can drastically reduce your income. Sure. That's the biggest way that we see people. On Schedule C. Mm-hmm. I guess you could also see it on Schedule E. With yes, the, with uh, the rentals. Rentals. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking at those schedules, it's important to find the depreciation, amortization, and if it's an oil and gas royalty or working interest depletion, and add those back to the bottom line because those are non-cash expenses that are allowed on tax return. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think I could tell a little story here. Okay. One of the ones we talked about. 
So I'm referencing a book. It's called How They Stash the Cash. Isn't that catchy? Mm -hmm. uh, a Guide to Finding Income Hidden by a Spouse During Divorce by Mark Cohn. And we picked this up, and I think it was published in 2012. He just has some interesting stories, and they're only a few pages long. But one of the ones is about a financial planner, and he created three different types of companies. And the just reducing income on a personal return is what made me think of this one. But he set up a corporate return, he set up a partnership return, and then he set up a personal tax return. And you and I were talking before the podcast. He says in his book that the IRS has auditors that audit corporate, partnership, and personal, and that they didn't really overlap. But you said that that's kind of different now. Yeah, I think that's still their policy, but they are understaffed at this point. So we have seen auditors that kind of do individuals and also partnerships if the need arises. So it's mostly a, an understaffing issue, I believe. Not like a connecting the dots investigation. Right. No, no. Yeah. So, so there is that risk there mm -hmm. for spouses to be aware of. Right. But basically, he set up the corporate return where he would put all of his earnings from his financial planning business. Then he set up the partnership as a management company. And we're going to kind of talk about some strategic structures right. later, but I, this is just one way to reduce the income on your return for sure. So he sets up a corporate return for the business receipts. Then he sets up the partnership as a consulting company. And then of course he's got his personal return. And so let's say he puts $350,000 into his company and then he would pay a quote unquote consulting fee to the partnership. And with extra expenses, he would make it where the corporate return and the partnership return showed zero net income. And then on the partnership return as one of those expenses, making it his net income zero, he would then show that there were rental fees and rental expenses paid to the personal return. Well, then by the time he gets to the personal return, the incentive was let's make this zero. So he had itemized deductions and quote unquote rental expenses that would show up on Schedule E that you were just talking about so that it makes it zero income on his personal return as well. And he said that the guy would actually work it backwards. He'd look at how many itemized deductions did he have, you know, because the auditor, I guess, is going to check that back yes. to the source documents. Right. That seems to make sense. Yes. So he would make sure that that matched all the source documents. And then he would back into what he needed to make all the other returns zero. Yes. You know, that's a pretty common practice to do it like that because you always want to minimize the income for tax purposes at the mm -hmm. corporate level. So that's something that we would typically see um, in a tax planning strategy. But in the event of a divorce litigation, you're just going to want to work that backwards so that you can get to the true right. income. Yeah. And I think what also made this just went above and beyond the typical tax planning and something I didn't mention is that on these different companies, he would also just put through personal expenses right. to yeah. make like he was forcing that net yes. income, not just reducing it mm -hmm. by working these strategies, but he was actually forcing it to all be zero. Yeah. So that's a problem. Yeah. Personal expenses in, in a business are definitely not a tax planning strategy, a tax right. evasion <laughs> strategy. Right. Yeah, so. right, right. We are definitely not endorsing yeah. that on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> you know, I mentioned this last week on the check kiting podcast that sometimes these schemes seem like more work than just going yes. to work every day. Like, can you imagine trying to back into all that? And I know. Having putting personal expenses through. And then if I was if I was this guy, I mean I would 
make sure that these personal expenses were like in that gray area. So right. like having to dig through all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But if you're never caught, I guess. If you're never caught, you get more confident in yeah. it and it just blooms from just there. Keep yeah. it going. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that I've had pop up that I wanted to ask you about is, can you kind of talk about how can a person own or operate a multi-million dollar company and then only have a salary that shows up on their personal return of like, I had one the other day of like $65,000, but it's a $40 million company. Yeah. So that generally would happen if someone was the owner of an S corporation. Mm -hmm. So the rule with S corporations is all owners must take salaries and that salary must be quote unquote reasonable. So the IRS doesn't actually ever define what reasonable is other than a generally reasonable salary for that interest, for that area of expertise in the same general size of company. Mm. So that makes it very gray and it's not something that they check a lot. And as long as the salary isn't extremely low where they're missing out on social security or Medicare tax, that's not a red flag that they would come and check. Mm -hmm. So you could have a multi-million dollar company with a one owner and it's set up as an S corporation. And that owner, if they were doing that job for another company and they weren't the owner, they the salary would be 70000 mm-hmm. So that's kind of how they can make that happen. I got you. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's actually appropriate in, in right. the IRS's eyes. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's sometimes shocking. Yes. Um, <laughs> if, no, if, if like our clients never looked at a tax return before mm-hmm. and they're saying, but we own all this stuff. I mean, we own tons of land and, mm-hmm. you know, we take trips. I mean, how in the world are we surviving right. off of 65000 And So there are ways to get to that number to actually see what they're living off of yeah. to do a lifestyle analysis. But, you know, the IRS, I'm guessing, isn't really doing a lifestyle analysis whenever they right. go check these yeah, things not, either. Not generally, not unless they suspect some sort of fraud once the audit starts, then they would mm-hmm. do something like that. But it's not something that they would do just in a straightforward audit. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be difficult too, like some of the cases I'm thinking about, uh, that I actually worked with Clayton, who's a partner at um, Shauna's yes. firm too. But uh, it would be very difficult to go find a comparable salary. Right. Like very difficult mm-hmm. because maybe they're in such a niche market or because of the collection of companies that they have, it would be very difficult. Yeah. And, and that's what we find a lot when we're helping clients try to determine what a reasonable salary is. Because the salary that they pull, they have to pay FICA and Medicare tax on it, where the income that flows through to them from the S-Corp, they don't. So it's kind of a balancing act. That's a problem that we run into when we're setting the reasonable compensation is that it is such a niche area that there isn't really much data to determine that salary. Right. Right. It's not like you can just go out and look to see what Walmart's paying a person that's similar or corporations. So, Okay, so I have been in training all week a virtual conference with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners and several of the sessions that were available to us were about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And so I just thought I would ask, and because I think it's going to start showing up a little more, if someone has earnings from Bitcoin, where would these show up? Or if they owned Bitcoin, where are they supposed to show up? So if you just own it and like you just went out and bought some and nothing else has happened, it's not actually going to be on your tax return at the end that year. Mm-hmm. If you sell Bitcoin, then it would show up on your Schedule D, just like any stock sell would. The other thing that we see, we haven't seen much of it, but I think we'll see more in the future, is if you do a job and you get paid by Bitcoin, that gets reported to you as if it were cash, so just through mm-hmm. your W-2 or okay. 1099, whatever the case would be. But the year that you actually purchase it, we wouldn't see anything until there was earnings off of it. 
Okay. Yeah. Until you've sold it. Sold it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anything else on 1040s that you think might be helpful? I think that pretty much covers it. You know, just looking through all those forms and trying to track back every piece of property that might be listed. The only other thing is if there's a Schedule C on the 1040, sometimes there's also um, a depreciation schedule associated with that. And so instead of just taking that lump sum depreciation number, you would add it back to the bottom line, but also go to that depreciation schedule and look at the line by line items, because that is just a listing of the dates purchased and every piece of equipment that that company owns. And sometimes you can find things like, you know, other personal vehicles. They're not supposed to be there, but they may be. So that's a good place to look also. Yeah, that's a good point. If someone, I think we've talked about this before, how do you get a depreciation schedule? Because they don't always come back with your return. Right. So that's just kind of a common practice. Most CPA firms don't provide the depreciation schedule to their clients with a copy of their tax return, just because that way, if there's ever an an issue or you're trying to go to another CPA firm, you have to kind of call and ask for that. Mm -hmm. Just kind of a common practice. But if you request it from the CPA and you signed that tax return, they have to give you one. Okay. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. So let's shift from personal to company for Mm -hmm. a little bit. And if you kind of want to talk about the different forms and what their purposes are, and then we can dive into what we can find there. So the Form 1065 is what you would report if you have a partnership. It's just a general form that has a K-1 attached to for each partner. The thing with partnership returns is you pay your portion of the tax and you actually pay what we call self-employment tax on that. So you pay FICA and Medicare as well as income tax on that. And that's reported on 1065. The other setup is S-corporations and those have not partners, but members, but kind of the same thing. You do not pay Social Security and FICA on the income of an S-corp at your personal level, but you do get a W-2 from that, where in a partnership you don't get a W-2, you just pay tax on all the income that flows through to you. And that kind of connects to that reasonable salary that we talked yes, about. Yes, yes, and that that's the balancing act you play with an S-corp is a reasonable salary enough that the Social Security and Medicare tax is paid in, but not, not more than you need to because you want that flow through to come through to you without paying that. Right. And then the other type of entity, the 1120, that's a corporation, so it has maybe shareholders, but not actual owners. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tax is calculated and paid on the form. 1120. It's by the corporation. By the corporation. It does not flow through to an individual 1040 at all. Okay. Other than possible dividends, but that's not really income that it's paid in. Right. Right. Yeah. So within each of these returns, what are some key schedules to look at? You know, just like we made our list on the 1040, Mm -hmm. what kind of forms or schedules would we look at or even statements Mm -hmm. uh, that we would look Mm -hmm. at on these? So with the 1065 or the 1120S, the form 8825 is kind of equivalent to the Schedule E on the personal return. It lists any rentals that they have, the address of those rentals, and the income, and any expenses, including depreciation. On all three of them, you would look at the depreciation schedule also. For the same reasons, you would look at it on an individual return. Look at what those assets are. See if there's any personal assets that are hidden there. And then also the Schedule D, and that shows any capital assets that have been sold that year, but also any investment properties that maybe you thought that you owned, but really the company owned them and they were sold quickly. So then you can track those. Okay. And that's on 
All three? All three of those. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll be right back to my conversation with Shauna Robinson. Do you suspect your spouse is hiding assets or lying about his or her income? We've spent the last eight years working to perfect a system that finds hidden assets and verifies income specifically for divorce cases. And for the first time, we're making this available to the public. Join us for our Find Money in Divorce workshops beginning in August. For more information, visit findmoneyindivorce.com. What about statements to a return? You know, a lot of times, like you'll go to a schedule mm-hmm. and it'll say C statement, whatever. I feel like those are really helpful sometimes. Yes. So there are lines on all form, all of the tax forms that just kind of combine a whole bunch of expenses and it'll mm-hmm. say C statement three. You can go to statement three and get a detail of what all of those expenses are. And that can be very telling. And those statements should always be included with the tax return because the IRS wants to see those two when the tax return is mailed in. Sure. And they're just at the back. Yes. Back they're just the at the back of the return. Mm-hmm. Flip to the end and yes. you'll find them. Okay. So we've kind of talked about the setting up, you know, just with my story, setting up different structures mm-hmm. to help minimize income or reduce income, a strategy to reduce income for tax purposes. What are some some of these methods? I mean, we kind of hit on a little bit, but you can recap. Um, one thing that people sometimes do in tax planning is if you have tiered companies, kind of tweaking the year end on some of those mm-hmm. companies mm-hmm. because some industries have times during the year where they produce a lot more income and you want to kind of stagger those. So changing the fiscal year is one thing that people sometimes do. And then also setting up a management company. Mm-hmm. Of course, the expenses you put against it need to be legitimate right. company expenses. <laughs> don't plug personal yeah, expenses. Don't plug personal expenses in there. But that's one thing that you can do to kind of tier that income a little bit. We see that a lot. And then also the other thing is being strategic with the purchase of your fixed assets because mm-hmm. the the tax depreciation provisions right now are so owner-friendly. So that's one thing that you want to definitely look into. Right. So then by looking, at, by looking at what does this actually look like if I put all these returns right. or all these financial statements on the same year end, mm-hmm. that helps if that strategy has been used. Right. Or the depreciation schedule again, like you talked about earlier. Yeah. And then realizing how big that depreciation uh, tax depreciation can be, can be. yeah it's, it's it can be very beneficial yeah yeah, yeah. on the tax side but oh, if yes. you're going through yes. divorce on the tax side yes <laughs> going through divorce and maybe not yeah also whenever we have those differing year ends it's not that you don't ever pay tax on that right it's de- just a timing issue with a lot of tax there's very few tax issues that aren't just a timing issue eventually it's always going to catch up Right. So it's just when you first and once you set up those fiscal years, they stay that way. You, you mm-hmm. can't change one year to the next. So it's kind of like in the beginning how you set it up and then you flow through. And at some point, if all the companies closed, that's when it would catch then up. You'd it would just be that. a timing issue. Okay. And you kind of hit on this, but maybe a little more specifically, like what's the difference between tax depreciation and book depreciation? So it's basically just timing, but book depreciation, when you're doing your book financials, you're doing that for kind of your true picture or something that you would give a bank. 
And so if you were to buy a $100,000 piece of equipment this year on your book depreciation, you're going to depreciate that out based on how long you actually think that piece of equipment is going to last, Mm -hmm. if it's 15 years or 20 years or whatever. With tax depreciation, the motive behind tax depreciation is to lower your taxable income now. Mm -hmm. And so the tax provisions would allow you to possibly take all of that, the whole cost, that whole $100,000 this year and lower your income as close to zero as possible. And that sounds like really good, you know, in the current year. Right. But then if you sell it before it's been completely used. Then there's recapture and tax, yes. And it just gets added back. Correct. So once again, like you said, Yeah, it's just the timing Timing. issue, yes. (laughs) Let's see. What are some other items that might be cause a difference between book and tax income? Other than depreciation. Um, so if you're looking at a Form 1065 or 1120S, you're going to want to go to that Schedule M1, and that will actually list all the, the book-to-tax reconciliation for that return that year. Um, so you're always going to want to look there because that will tell you every single thing that was reconciled and all the differences. But some of those are federal tax paid. Mm-hmm. So that is a deduction on your book income, but it's not a deduction for tax income. So that's one of them. Also meals and entertainment. um, Those might be, you're going to fully deduct those on your books um, because it reflects your cash. But some of those may be not deductible for federal tax purposes or only partially deductible for federal tax purposes. And then another one on S-Corps that's a big one is if any owner that owns more than 2% of that S-Corp, any life insurance policy that the S-Corp has on Mm -hmm. them has to be added back for tax purposes. And then any other little thing, like any penalties that are paid are not tax deductible, so those get added back. And then depreciation issues either way. Or if you sell an asset in a current year, there could be a difference between the book gain and the tax gain or mm-hmm. book loss and tax loss due to those depreciation issues. Okay. Okay. All right. So do you have any other examples? I mean, we've just covered tax Uh, versus book depreciation, but what about some other items that would cause a difference between tax income and book income? Well, there are several things that are reported differently on book book than tax. And the easiest way if you're looking at a tax return is to go to Schedule M1, and that's usually on page five, right below the balance sheet area of the tax return. That area actually reconciles book income to tax income, so it will tell you every difference in detail. But some of the things that would be listed on there would be the federal tax paid, because you'll deduct that on your book income, and it's not a tax deduction, obviously. And then also meals and entertainment. You would take 100% of those off of your book income. They may be only 50% deductible or not deductible at all on okay. for a federal tax return. And then any assets that were sold during that year, if there's a book tax depreciation difference, there's going to be a book tax gain or loss difference. Okay. So you'll see those there also. And then if you're looking at an S-corporation return, if there's any member that owns more than 2% and there was a life insurance policy that the company paid for for them, mm-hmm. that's going to be a book tax reconciliation item too. So those are just kind of the top-sided ones, but any return you look at, you can go to that M1 and you'll find every item that's the difference. So I just realized we pro- you probably should explain what is book. What are we even talking about whenever oh, we're sure. saying book? I didn't think about that. So book income would just be basically the cash in and out of the company. You know, when you look at tax income, there's definitely a 
you're trying to lower your taxable income and there's tax laws that allow you to accelerate depreciation or, you know, tax provisions that kind of help boost the economy that give you additional deductions. But your book income is kind of like income you got and expenses that you had to pay. So that's more probably more of a true picture of your cash in and out of the company. Also connected to, to I feel like almost every client loves to say this to us, like, they were cooking the books right. or there has to be two set of books. Yeah. Like it's, we're essentially talking about the same thing. We're right. saying book yes. versus tech. It's, yes. it's whatever you envision yeah. the cooking of the books, the you, books part of you that. You don't have to have two sets of books. There's a schedule in one on the tax right. return to reconcile it. And there's not that many items that should be the difference to be just blunt. <laughs> right. You should just be able to use your financial yes. statements. Yes. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to talk about another common misconception, perception of something. And you can explain it for all of us. What is the difference between net income and distributions? And what do you pay tax on? Just how does that whole picture work? Because this is one of the messiest things that we get into when we're talking to clients. It's really very simple, but it can get confusing if you've never looked at the form K-1 that comes out of a partnership or S-corporation tax return. So I usually have one there to explain it to a client. This is a common misconception I feel like of a lot of my clients and I don't even do taxes <laughs> but the differences between net income and distributions and what you pay taxes on versus just that whole thing just that right. whole mess that's an issue with partnerships and s-corps usually when I'm trying to explain it to a client I do have a copy of the schedule k1 that they receive because that does kind of help walk through it but basically you do not pay tax on distributions you receive from a partnership or S-corp. You do pay tax on your ownership percentage of the income they produce. How that gets reconciled out is that when you first buy into an entity, you give them a sum of money to get your ownership. Mm -hmm. That gives you basis. Mm -hmm. Then that year, let's say your portion of the income to pay tax on is 10,000, but you got no distribution. So now if you bought it in for 300, now you're at 310 Mm -hmm. and you've had no distribution, but you've paid tax on all that. Mm -hmm. So then the next year there's a loss for the company. So there's no income for you to pay tax on, but you take out $70,000 as a distribution. So now your basis goes down to seven, goes down by 70,000 and you don't pay tax that year on that 70,000. That's kind of how it works. It's kind of a hard concept to grasp only because, you know, you're getting money and you're not paying tax on it or you're paying tax on money you never actually got. But as a partner in a partnership or member in an S-corp, you pay tax on your ownership percentage of income every year. And that gives you basis when you get distribution it lowers. In the event that you take more distribution than you have basis, that is a capital gain for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. the, the term is distributions in excess of basis and you pay capital gain tax on that. So, okay. and that happens in the year that you take that that particular distribution, which gets your basis back to zero because you're paying you. tax on it. So there's always that basis scale that's going up and down that you have to, to watch. So that's kind yeah. of the, the simple. And the other thing that sometimes people will question or get upset about is like, well, how can a company lose money for three years and you still have cash? Like they have mm, to be hiding yeah, something. Yeah. Generally, the biggest one is tax depreciation. Right. Like there's things that are non-cash expenses yeah. that lower your taxable income. So that's kind of how you can create cash to give a distribution, but not have necessarily income that matches that. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, you're always paying 
taxes on the income that's earned. You just may not take it out of the company in that year. So it's already had the taxes paid on it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the next year you decide, I'm finally going to take out a portion of this income instead of just leaving it in the company to keep... You know, like reinvesting essentially. Yes. So you can decide to take it out. Yeah. So and that's the the actual like cash piece where you actually get to go spend that money. Yes. But you've already paid taxes on it because Mm -hmm. you pay tax. You paid taxes on it the year it was earned by the company. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that should be clear for everyone (laughs) who listens to this podcast who then comes to see Shauna or myself. Uh, Just kidding. We'll walk through it. Okay. I'm curious if you have any stories for us. I did have an audit um, a few years back and this client had sold some assets and when they sold those assets, they basically opened up another bank account in another bank and put that check into it. And they didn't tell us about it. Um, They didn't tell, uh, I don't even think the other spouse knew. Mm. The auditor came in and when an audit comes in, they take your bank statements and they look at cash in, cash out. Well, there was one time when that client had written a check from one of his bank accounts to that other bank account. The auditor saw that. That opened up a, an avenue for them to look into that account. They got all the bank statements for that, and they were able to look at that bank account, see those sales. Why were these not on the tax return? You know, the taxpayer was very upset that it was found. They didn't mm-hmm. think, the, they didn't want the wife to know about it. They didn't want us to know about it. Yeah. Um, so... You know, the common misconception is I can just go open another bank account and hide that. It's very hard to hide money. Oh, like, very hard. It will always be found. So <laughs> I'm still leaving the challenge out there that if anybody wants to tell me of a unique way that they've experienced somebody <laughs> hiding money, I will tell you how I could find it. Right. Like, right. just send us an email, podcast mm-hmm. at workmanforensics.com. Like, challenge accepted. Right. I, like, we can find it. Mm-hmm. And if an auditor wants to, they can find it. Right. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't even a very sophisticated um, audit. It was pretty baseline audit and mm-hmm. it was very simple to find and taxpayer thought it was bulletproof and it was not. Yeah. No. <laughs> he had a lot of explaining to do to the spouse. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I really do want somebody to take me up on my challenge. Like so bad. <laughs> like I want some crazy stories and then I want right. to talk about them on the podcast. And then whenever they have to do with taxes, I'm going to give you a call and then you Great. can come over. Okay, perfect. Although what we don't want are tax questions over the podcast at Workman Forensics. Do right. not send us tax questions. <laughs> if you have tax questions, you need to just go talk to Shauna yes. with her tape. Like, that's what needs to happen. Anyway, Shauna, thanks so much for being on the show Thank today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To get updates on future podcasts, events, and resources, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 